So every once in a while I need to give this disclaimer. Oh, by the way, we're going to be in Acts 24 and 25 today. Um, just a, <laughs> I heard a couple of groans there, 24 and 25. It's a narrative passage. It's okay. We're going to just pull out the, the, the narrative of it. Um, but one of, the things, uh, one of the things I was teaching over the last couple of, uh, a couple of weeks in Colorado um, was I, I was teaching a ministry of the word course, which is typically primarily like a, a preaching class. And so um, I was, teaching, I was uh, teaching them how to handle God's word, how to teach it, how to communicate it, how to, how to preach, what preaching looks like, what does it mean. Um, and in that, uh, I, I really stress that preaching, especially on Sunday morning, preaching is about God's word connecting with God's people in that moment on that day. The, like you're preaching, I always try to convince people, especially right now with the internet and how everybody feels like all of our sermons and messages go all over and, and you know, maybe you have sent some of my messages or Robbie's or Jeff's or Christoph's or whoever's, like you've, you've sent them, um, other churches, other pastors, we pass them around and, and that's, that's not a bad thing, it can be encouraging, but sometimes we can get distracted from the point that preaching primarily is the proclamation of the good news of the kingdom of God that has come to earth manifested in the King, Jesus Christ. That is preaching. All of God's word testifies to that, and it is for a specific people in a specific time and place. And so trying to get them to say, like, don't, don't write your sermons for um, your seminary professor who might listen to it later. Don't, don't preach your sermons for an invisible crowd that is out there. Like, you have the people that God has placed in front of you in that moment, and it is for them. And so um, we have a little bit of an extension of that for those um, who are online, but there's something powerful and specific about a sermon that's meant for a group of people. I was really struck by that um, this week because there are many times where I've had to give the disclaimer that if you think this sermon is about you, um, that, that's between you and the Holy Spirit, but I don't write sermons for specific people, okay? So, like, I don't sit here and say, like, well, um, who would I pick on here? All right, so, I'm not looking at Joe. Sorry, Joe. Like, you're, I'm not just saying, like, okay, well, this is what Joe needs to hear this week, so I'm just going to write this out, and everyone else can eavesdrop. But in a way, it is written for you. Because I've just experienced so many times how God does, is doing a work in a family. Not just in individuals, but in a family. And so I've had many, many, many conversations over the last few weeks, in the last couple of months, that as I'm writing this sermon, like I am thinking about you. I am praying for you. I am like asking God, like, okay, God, how does this text glorify you in the truth of this passage, which has a particular like, meaning and understanding that the writer, the, the author, was getting across, but it is for this people. You knew, God, from the beginning of time that I, in my weakness, would be standing here preaching this passage to these people. If we need any more example of that, just look over the last few weeks. Like, What are the odds that, like, how could you possibly explain it away that like, a year and a half ago, we outline the sermon through the series through Acts, and then it just happens to be on Robbie's final day is the passage that we had determined, that, um, that God had determined that it would be the Ephesian farewell, the farewell to the Ephesian elders. Like, how, do you, how do you explain that? How do you explain it when Jeff is speaking on what he was preaching on on the, the um, Sunday after the election? Like in the midst of all that. So it's, it's all these things that we look at and we say, okay, God, you know the timing and he knew the timing here. And here's the thing that I see God doing a lot in our congregation that this passage really addresses. Many of us in this room are on roads that we don't want to be on. And this theme has been going on through Acts as Paul is constantly put on roads, sometimes not the path he wants, sometimes the path he wants, sometimes the path he wishes there was a different way. But many people in this room would say, I am right now in a season on a road that I don't know if I want to be on. I don't understand why I'm on this road. And if you aren't in that mode right now, just rest assured that there's likely somebody within arm's length of you this morning that is very much there. 
And what we have is an encouragement this morning from God's word of what does it look like? How do you actually function? How does Paul function on this path as he is in prison and not on the road that he wants to be on? But we're going to look and see, well, it's the road that God has him on. And how do you function in the midst of that? So let's pray, and then we'll read Acts 24. Father, help us to be faithful to your word. Help us to be faithful to the timeless truth that is here in this text. And also faithful to knowing that you purposed that this passage would be preached on this morning for this family in this time. Lord, let us not turn away from you this morning, but let us turn toward you and receive all that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to read chapter 24, and then I'm just, chapter 25 is almost a repeat, so I'm just going to kind of paraphrase that a little bit. But in chapter 24, after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. Sound like he's kissing up a little bit? He is. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. So remember, Paul has been arrested All on trumped-up charges. All on false accusations. Not a single thing that they are saying at this point is is true. They have lobbied some other things and mixed some truth in with it. But they are giving all these false accusations. And then we'll see what Paul has done before and what he will do again. He gives a defense. Verse 10. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied... Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say that wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. So Paul gives his defense and lays it out. And then... This happens. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. Make note of that, how Paul is treated. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed 
and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So if we just take a step back and look at Paul's situation, it can be pretty alarming at the injustice of it all. He is unjustly in prison because of false accusations. Even the government that is imprisoning him doesn't understand why he is there. He is being used as a, as a political pawn. That Felix, is, is his desire is to keep the peace among the Jews, so he doesn't want any kind of um, uprising or anything like that. So he wants to keep the peace there, but he's also listening to Paul and saying, well, this guy's kind of interesting. I don't find anything wrong with him, but he's also entertained by him, and he keeps summoning him just to like hear what he has to say. Whenever he's in the mood for some kind of like interesting conversation about any of this, ah, go, go get Paul, have him come up here, and let's, I want to talk to him for a little bit. And then he does, and then he sends Paul back. This seemingly endless cycle of false accusations, making a defense, and then being taken away back to prison as if he doesn't matter at all. Can you imagine how infuriating that would be? Can you imagine how you and I would feel if put in that situation? Your freedom completely taken away because of false accusations. You've clearly laid out your defense that defends you. Even the people who are holding you agree there's no reason to keep you. But they just keep you in there to appease the mob and for their own entertainment. What in the world is going on here? Why is Paul still in prison? Why is he there? It makes no sense. And there's only one explanation. And it is not always popular. But it is this. He is in prison because God wants him in prison. Period. He is on the road he is on because it is the road that God has placed him on. We've talked about this, like I said, going through Acts. That God's sovereignty means that the road you are on is the road God has you on in this moment. I mean, at any time, Paul could have been released. It seemed at any time like he would be. How many times in Acts have we read similar stories and then realizing the council says, look, they've done nothing, like release this man. Multiple times, multiple times the apostles are brought before a council like this and they are turned away. Multiple times they are left out. And even when they are put in prison, multiple times they are broken out with an angel of the Lord or an earthquake or whatever. But what is clear is that nobody in the church, early church, was in prison unless God wanted them to be in prison. And now here he is. Paul, who's already been released at different times, who's already been broken out of prison at different times, is left to wonder day after day after day for two years. God, where are you? Why am I here? There had to be a great temptation for Paul to be filled in those long hours, to be filled with bitterness and anger. Had to be a a, a great temptation for him to give himself over to that anger and grief over his own people, the fact that it's his own people who had turned against him and made up these lies against him. The very people who were supposed to love God and be with him were the ones that turned him over. Anger about their false accusations. Anger at the Roman government for not letting him go and for appeasing the angry mob. Anger that maybe that that Felix just kept summoning him for his own personal entertainment as he sat in prison day after day for two years. But I have to also believe there's a great temptation for Paul to be angry with God. Why? Why aren't you delivering me from this road? 
Why are you keeping me on this path? Why don't you do something? Why aren't you breaking me out? Why, after everything that I've done for the gospel and the advancement of the gospel and the kingdom, you would think that you would pay attention to me and get me out of here? Maybe for you this morning, that scenario hits a little close to home. Maybe on the road that you were on, you were tempted toward anger, maybe towards others for, for putting you in the situation you're in. Or maybe your anger is self-directed, mad at yourself for getting yourself into this mess. Or anger at God for not doing something about it. But here's the thing. Paul seemingly does not think any of these things. We certainly can say, based on what we see here, that he does not give himself over to that. If he is tempted by anger, we don't know it in this situation. Through this, we see glimpses of what Paul believes, what he has already written, what he has already declared, and what he declares now before Felix and before Festus. We see what he believes. We see in his life, in his actions there, the demonstration that he actually does believe that, his faithful demonstrations of that belief. And we also then see the reward and the fruit that comes from that faith. And now, those are the questions that I want to pose for you this morning. Questions on the road that you are on. What do you believe? Are you demonstrating that belief? And what rewards are you pursuing in it? So, first, what Paul believes. He says in verse 21 of chapter 24, Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. This is the crux of the problem for Paul. He cannot discount what he has come to know, which is that Jesus Christ lived and died and rose from the grave, and that that has changed everything for him. He said earlier, before the imprisonment, in 1 Corinthians 15, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures." In fact, he goes on to even say later in that chapter, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul's whole faith hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You pull that out and he says we are above all men most to be pitied. You pull that out and all of a sudden he is in prison for nothing. He is walking this road for nothing. He believes what he has already testified to before them multiple times, that the reason I'm in here is because I believe Jesus rose from the dead. And that belief, that understanding of who God is has driven him to this place where he does not count his life as his own because he believes that God is, existed. He existed, manifested in the person of Jesus Christ, the exact imprint of the nature of God, the Messiah, the King. That God is good. In this middle of this road, he believes and declares God is good. And that is demonstrated not only in the history of God's faithfulness with his people, but tangibly in the life and the death of Jesus Christ. And so he points to that, knowing that God is good. And he believes that God is sovereign. He is in control over everything. And that is demonstrated in the resurrection of Jesus, where not even death could hold him. That is why he hinges so heavily, holds so tightly to the resurrection. And it is that belief that holds him where he is. He has seen literally with his own eyes, after being blinded by Jesus, by, the glory, by his glory, he has come to see that Jesus Christ is the risen Lord. And what that has done to him has been made clear. He said, I have been crucified with Christ. 
It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In a Christian culture, which is what we have all grown up in here, if you've grown up in the United States, you've grown up in a heavily influenced, a culture heavily influenced by Christianity. And there are a lot of blessings in that. But one of the hard things about that is the culture gets meshed together. We start to assume that everything about our culture is Christian, and, and it's not. And so we start to get the idea that, like, well, being a Christian is basically more about just being a good person. Going to church is about just, like, getting my life together a little bit. I just want to be really clear that Christianity exists or doesn't all hinged on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Anything else that we get from it, like some morals or values or ideas of how to interact with one another or how, how to like be a better person or how to just like awaken a little bit of spirituality in us, all of that is worthless in the end. And it will not sustain you. And it will not last. And it will not save you. And what Paul has declared is that is what I give my life for. And he has given his life. So not only is that who God is, manifested in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but also that Paul says, and I have identified with that, that death. I am no longer my own. So there is a God who is created, that I was created by and created for, and that through Christ I am reconciled, forgiven of my rebellion, and that now when I receive that, that is not just some beliefs that I kind of hold out here. It's not a philosophy or an identity off here to the side that I kind of mesh with my own identity and my own desires and my own view. What Paul says is what I have, what I have preached and what I have claimed that Jesus has died and rose from the grave. He said, I have identified with that. I am no longer myself, my own. I don't exist for me. This identity in Christ doesn't exist alongside of my own identity. I have laid this down and I have embraced this. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So I want to be really clear that Christianity, as far as a, a religion and a worldview and, and, and a belief system, is that Jesus Christ actually lived, actually died, and actually rose again. It was, he was resurrected, defeating sin and death. Following Jesus, being a Christian, means not only believing all that, but giving up my life and saying, I don't exist for me anymore. That's what I exist for. That is who I am. And we are there because where else would we go? If you believe that the kingdom of God has come to earth, invaded earth through the person of Jesus Christ, and that in him you have life, then even on hard roads, you will stick because where else would you go? Paul is experiencing what the disciples had earlier with Jesus in John 6. After many disciples turned back and no longer walked with Jesus, Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. My desperate desire is that I know full well, I, I've done this a long time, I know full well in a room like this, some of you, some of you have kind of a violent reaction to this idea. A lot of you have a very apathetic response to this idea. And some of you have experienced this and have gotten to a place in your life where you're saying, I don't, I don't have anywhere else to turn. All I have is Christ. And you've tasted and seen that he is good and he is worthy. That is what I want for everyone. If you asked Paul what he believes about this road that he is on, about this situation that he is in, he would say, 
I'm not my own. I exist for him because he made me and he has put me here and he has me here for a purpose and I know that purpose is good because of the cross. And I know he would say that the temptation to abandon him is from the evil one whose purpose is my destruction. And so if you're on that road right now, the first step is preaching truth to yourself and asking yourself, what do you believe? What do you believe about this road that you're on? Do you believe that God has placed you there or do you believe that it's random? Do you believe that God, if you do believe God has placed you there, do you believe that his purposes are good or do you feel like he's kind of arbitrary towards you, kind of apathetic towards you? Or worse yet, do you believe that he's evil towards you? Or do you see in the cross the God who is and the God who is good? What do you believe? And look, I know that one of the things that complicates this is when we realize that we're the makers of our own road. We realize like, well, yeah, but I'm on this road because I have rebelled against God. Well, if that's the case, then turn and repent and know that God has not lost you. He works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So in that moment, even if you have gone completely down the wrong road, For years and years and years, when you stop in that moment and you turn and repent of your rebellion and just turn to Christ, guess what? You're exactly where he wants you to accomplish everything that he has to accomplish in your life. It's one of the great mysteries. That he works all things together for good. So whatever bad decisions you have made to get to this point, God stands ready to redeem you, to renew you, and to restore all things. Do you believe? And if you are powerless on the road you are on, you did not choose it. It was done, it was chosen for you. Do you believe that God is good? Have you surrendered your life to him? Do you believe your life is not your own, but you exist for his glory, and that that is ultimately far better Or were you hoping to follow Jesus in an uneventful way? Do you believe that he is working something really amazing? Paul does. We know he believes this, not just because of what he says, but how he lives. He exhibits faith in his actions. And we've talked about this before, the difference between faith and belief. We get those confused a lot. We think that faith is just belief in these certain things, but faith is demonstrated belief. The difference between faith and belief is belief is saying like, I I believe these things. I can articulate those things. But faith is living accordingly, is living as though you actually believe those things. So if you say, if we say that we believe God is in control, but our lives are racked with worry, we're demonstrating that we don't fully believe what we say we believe. Now, to be clear, none of us on this side of eternity fully believe what we claim to believe. Amen? Like, none of us. This is the father who believes Jesus can heal his son, and he says, I believe. Help my unbelief. That is our posture always. And so what we see is when God reveals our lack of faith, he isn't doing it to be mean or cruel. He's not doing it to scold us. He's doing it as a kindness that we would see, oh, I'm not there. There's more. There's more that I can receive from God. There's more faith that I can have. That's really critical that we understand that. The only way you're going to assess that rightly is if you realize you don't have to defend yourself to God. Jesus is your justifier. He's already died for you. He's already done that. I'm getting ahead of myself. So here, Paul demonstrates. Let me show you how Paul demonstrates it. He, he demonstrates his belief that God is sovereign, that God is good, that God has him there, and that he can trust him. He demonstrates it, number one, by giving a defense that is very even keel and very true. His defense has no sensationalism in it or anxiety that he needs to convince somebody. Have you ever been in a debate with somebody and they're 
they're really calm. And it's kind of annoying. It's kind of annoying because what they're demonstrating in their calmness of the debate is that they don't need you to agree with them. They don't need you to be convinced. They maybe want you to be convinced. They maybe think it is good that you'd be convinced. But they don't need it. They don't need you to approve of their view. And that kind of hits us in a weird way. Because when you need somebody to approve of, well, that's when we bring in other things. That's when we exaggerate. That's when we kind of spread a little bit of rumor. That's when we kind of add something in there extra. Or we like add a little more passion or a little more like a little more oomph onto it because we really need them to agree. We need them to believe. But Paul doesn't. He doesn't get backed into a corner. He doesn't answer straw man arguments. He doesn't return false accusations for false accusations. He doesn't exaggerate. He doesn't sell. He functions as though he believes that Felix and Festus are not the ultimate judge. That he doesn't need them to believe him because he's looking to another judge. Do you live to please another judge or on this road that you are on, are you looking at one? Or are you controlled by what other people might view about your situation? People who don't know you, don't love you, don't love Jesus. People who are kind of looking at it from the outside or don't know the situation. Are you controlled by that? Are you controlled by social media or even your own standards? Or even like your own thoughts of of how things should be? Or do you know that there is one judge? And that is good news because that judge sees everything. You don't have to have power to be heard by him or to be seen by him. You don't have to be articulate articulate to convince him. All you need to do is turn and repent and trust him. So Paul gives that kind of defense that he knows there's another judge. He also gives a defense with gentleness and respect. Remember I told you to hold on to how he was treated? This is how we know that Paul gives his defense with gentleness and respect because he's treated well. Now, him him doing that with gentleness and respect doesn't guarantee he's going to be treated well, but I think we can all agree that if you go forward and you are not respectful to Roman authorities back in that time, you're probably not being treated really well. So the fact that he was treated well, that they said friends could come and visit him, is very unusual. He was basically made very comfortable in this time. He's been in prison before where he's not very comfortable. This is a time where he was made, he was taken care of. All of his friends could come and visit him. He was a curiosity. That's why they kept calling him back. They were intrigued by him. Felix was intrigued by him. Festus was intrigued by him. Agrippa will be intrigued by him. Because he is demonstrating this peace and this calm that they don't understand. That he believes there's a greater power at play. He does not act as though Festus is his savior. And that is strange for Festus. But he does act in a loving way towards him. And it challenges us. If we believe that God is in control, then what is our demeanor when we're dealing with the brokenness of the world? Are you bitter towards those who you see as destroying things? Do you see those who disagree with you as enemies or as less moral than you or as beneath you? Or do you act as someone who believes that it is by grace you have been saved and not by works that no one would boast? That would change the way that we actually behave. When we say we believe we are saved by grace and not by works, And then we act self-righteously to others and arrogantly we demonstrate that we don't believe what we say we believe. Does that make sense? If we believe that it was while we were yet sinners Christ died for us, then our posture towards others would be gracious and compassionate. And then we see Paul's demonstrated belief in that he perseveres. Just the fact that he hangs in there. Two years. You would think at some point in that two years, Luke would have another story like, well, and then this one day, Paul just had had enough. 
and just went nuts. Said, like, no, I'm not going to. If Felix wants me, he can come down here and get me. But we don't have that. That would have been like day three for me, I think. <laughs> Two years. How can Paul still be in good spirits? How could he not have been driven crazy? Because the Lord is near to him. Because he knows, when you know that God has you where he wants you, then that will strengthen you and make your faith steadfast. That's why Paul said, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. One of the things I love about looking at the book of Acts is you see that Paul is not just sitting in a study somewhere just writing down philosophies. This is his belief that sustains him. That he knows every day that his suffering produces endurance and that that endurance produces character and that that character produces hope. And he will not be put to shame for that hope because of what God has done. His hope is not in being released from prison. His hope is that the sovereign God of the universe would be near to him. That's what produces steadfastness. If the road that you are on, if your hope is in being taken off of that road, then you will not persevere. You'll follow for a couple steps and then you'll be like, all right, I got to take matters in my own hands. I got to fix this. I got to deal with this. But if your hope on that road is that God is with you, that he is near to you, and that he would produce hope in you, hope in the resurrection, then you will persevere. You will last. And this is one that we all know what it feels like to waffle. We all have experiences where, I I hope that you've had an experience where God has felt so near, your hope has been so sure that you feel rock solid. And then other times where you feel like even the slightest breeze might knock you off the path. Where you get so distracted on the road that you're on that you forget who you're on it with. Paul knows knows what that's like and Jesus knows what that is like we have a great high priest who is able to understand with us sympathize with us in our weakness so if that's you you're not alone but know that Jesus is the one who perseveres on your behalf and all we do is cling to him our perseverance is not found in our strength or in our courage but in just our clinging to Jesus at every step. Paul knows this. He's been through it before. And he's been going through it now. And finally, he is the reward. We don't always get to see this, but later in his imprisonment in Rome, Paul will write letters to the churches, the prison epistles that we've talked about after all of this. And we actually get to get an insight to what has happened in his heart. And I love this. I'm just going to read this passage. There's a lot of places I could go with this, but I just looked at this and thought, man, what a glimpse that after all of this, he's going, you're wondering like, well, what, is he, what, how, what did that do to him? Well, he, we know because he wrote letters afterwards to say what God had done in him. And he writes this to the church in Philippi, Philippians 4, 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Okay. 
I don't know if I can accurately communicate this in a way that will make sense in the way that my soul and my spirit are just like going nuts right now inside of me. But look at all the things from Paul's situation that he was just in as he writes this letter. He commands them, rejoice always. So he has a joy that is just constant. Always. When you're in prison, Paul, yes, always. When you're being used as a political pawn, yes, always. When you're being used for entertainment, your freedom is stripped away, yes, always. And he said, let your reasonableness, reasonableness be known to everyone. So his, the way he interacts with Felix and Festus, like it's all on display here. Is he's saying like, be reasonable to everyone. Why? The Lord is at hand. And so do not be anxious about anything. But then he says, in everything by prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. If that doesn't reveal his heart through that time, imagine all the times that Paul says, God, I want to be free from here. Do you think that Paul, every day for two years, just sat there and was just like, well, Lord, your will be done? No, I bet every day he prayed, God, I want to go see my church in Ephesus. God, let me go see those in Galatia. God, let me go see those in Corinth. God, I want to go see my brothers and sisters. God, let me go proclaim the gospel more. God, get me out of here. You think that wasn't there? And you don't think that is out of that experience? That he says, like, with everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, God, thank you for using me. God, thank you for putting me here. Thank you that you are sovereign. Thank you that this isn't random. Thank you that this isn't by chance. Thank you that you're not wasting all of this hurt and all of this pain and all this injustice. Thank you that one day you're going to make everything right. And then he pleads with him and says, God, let me go do this, but I trust you. And then he says, like, but in that posture, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So he could be saying, like, man, when I was in prison, like, I'm praying all these things, but because I believe in who God is, the peace of God, which is, like, you can't understand it. It's not something you can possibly explain, will guard your hearts. So when my heart started to go over to being angry or to being frustrated or being hopeless or being lost or being overwracked with mournful grief to being any of those things, the peace of God in Christ Jesus has guarded my heart and my mind as my thoughts start racing, I start believing lies of the enemy. I start believing lies from other people. I start, it all creeps in there and I start saying, no, because the peace of God in Christ Jesus has guarded my heart and my mind. You think this guy doesn't know of what he speaks? Do you think there's some scenario that we could give Paul that he would say, oh, I don't know if the peace of God can guard your heart there. Everything. Joy inexpressible, peace beyond understanding because the Lord is at hand. Paul believes and he has lived out that belief and he has seen God's goodness and he's experienced his nearness and that is a reward that he would never give up. It's worth everything. The reward isn't his release. The reward is his joy and his peace and knowing that God is near. And if you've experienced that and tasted it, you know what I'm saying. If you haven't, then you know that that is what's being offered. Not a life of morals or values or philosophies, but joy and peace that lasts and grows for all eternity. And by the way, produces what the world is always chasing, to be satisfied, to be fulfilled, to be content. Which is what he says just a few verses later. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The world has been chasing forever how to be satisfied, how to be filled, how to be content. And Paul's saying, here's the secret. The world can throw anything they want after you. You can be in any storm and you can have peace. You can have any trials and you will have joy. You can be in any circumstance and you can be content. And what's the secret? To be hidden in Christ who strengthens me. That's the only way. So the question is, do you want that reward? Is that what you want? Because when we say we believe these things, do you really want that? 
We say we believe that Jesus is enough. We say we believe that he fulfills all of our desires, but do we? Do we live in a way that demonstrates that? Do we ask God to stir that in our hearts? Do we plead with him for the grace to live in that way and to receive that reward? Or do we live in a way that demonstrates that what we actually believe is that the external circumstances of the world are more valuable? That the rewards that the world has to offer are better? What I want church is I want I want us to believe that whatever road you and I are on that God has you and me there and his purposes are not secret he does it for his glory and for our joy so that whatever path he puts you on that you would receive the fullness of his joy and that we together as a family would encourage one another in that and that together we would look different and have the world look at us and say, what is going on? And that we can point to our Father who has done this in us. Paul, we've talked about before, is bulletproof. His joy is unquenchable. His peace is unshakable. And it's because he has known Jesus He's experienced that he is enough, that his grace is sufficient, that the kingdom is a treasure hidden in a field. He has tasted and seen that the Lord is good. He counts all things as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. He sees all of his sufferings as light and momentary afflictions compared to what God is preparing, the, the glory that he is preparing ahead of us. The kingdom is worthy. Jesus is worthy. And so as we walk the roads that we are on. It does not take away the grief that we will feel about injustice, the grief that we will feel about the pain that has been in our lives. He's not making small of that. He's just saying it is serving a purpose for something greater. And the question is, do you believe? Do you want that? Do you believe that God is good? Do you believe that he demonstrated that through the incarnation, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? The reward was the joy set before him. That's why Christ endured the cross and that that joy is given to us. So my encouragement is to trust him in that today, to ask yourself those questions. Do I believe? What do my actions say about that belief? And do not be afraid to repent and to say, okay, God, I, I do believe, but help my unbelief. Right now I'm living in a way that is showing I don't actually believe this, but I do. I believe that and I want to believe that. So give me faith to act in, in faith, in demonstration of that belief so that I can receive all of the joy that you have for me. That is his call. That's what we exist to do as a community. You can't do that on your own. You need one another. You need brothers and sisters who not only as you're preaching to yourself, other brothers and sisters who remind you that God is good, Jesus is worthy, that can encourage you, can pray for you, can pray that your hearts and minds will be guarded. Don't do it on your own. We want to help you in that. So whatever that step is for you, write it down. We give those communication cards, not only so that we will know who the new people are, but also when you're struggling with something and you just feel like, man, I need some help. I need some community. I need, like, I, I need to invest more deeply. Like, you can always write on a card. Like, come and talk to us by all means. But sometimes I know that's scary. But take that step. Trust him. Preach the truth to yourself. Respond in faith and receive all the gifts that he has for you on this road. Gifts that do not perish. An inheritance that is unfading. Joy that does not come and go. Circumstances and peace that does not go away with the storms. Because it is better. Because he is better. Let's pray. Father, help us this morning. God, it's... it's it's heavy to look at these stories because it can seem like Paul's faith is so out of reach for us. But Lord, I pray right now that you would relieve any of the burden that people are carrying on their hearts right now. God, specifically, I, just, I pray that you would help us to believe and understand that these things you are calling us to, they are not a bar that we need to live up to. 
Because, Lord Jesus, you have already lived up to that bar for us. And you give us your righteousness freely. That all we need to do is turn and repent. And we, we exchange our sin. We give you our sin. And you give us your righteousness. And that is the deal. And it is a mystery. And so in this, Lord, I pray that we would see not a, not a bar or a standard that we're supposed to try to work to live up to, but a promise of what you are doing in us. That when you say rejoice always, it's not a command that you are like chastising us into, but it's a promise that you're saying like if, if we believe and we trust in Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, we can rejoice always. We can have peace that surpasses all understanding. We can have joy that is inexpressible. We can be content in all circumstances. And not only can we be those things here, not only can we experience those here, Lord, I pray that you would remind us that we will be those things. That the day will come, if we've trusted in you, that we will experience all of that. And it will be ever increasing for all eternity because you who began a work in us, you are faithful to complete it. You who have called us, you are faithful. So Lord, in the brokenness of our lives and in the difficulties of the roads that we are on as we stumble and trip and doubt and question, Lord, I pray that you would make yourself known and near to us. That we would know that you are not chastising us on that road. But because of the cross, you already see us as walking that road and you are just encouraging us to receive all that you have. You are a good father, abounding in steadfast love, slow to anger. His mercies are renewed every morning who demonstrated the depth of his love and that Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. And through that bond and through that love, you promise to work all things together for good. For those who love you and are called according to your purpose, Lord, we believe, help our unbelief, that we may experience the fruit of all the joy and the peace that you have to offer us. In Jesus' name.